Welcome to Conversations About Aging, a Catching Health podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, and I'm traveling throughout my home state of Maine, talking to people 60 and above about what it's like to be getting older. Today, I'm in Falmouth, enjoying a conversation with Alma, who is 96 years old. My name is Alma Thomas. Alma Thomas, and you were born? Alma Wilkes, Alma Wilkes. That's an English name. My father came from England. I was born in in Yonkers, New York. You know, I saw those pictures, and I hope you'll let me take pictures of the pictures. Oh, okay. But um, your your father's family looks very British, and your mother's family looks like they knew how to have a good time, and they looked very elegant. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was a very interesting family. Uh, I was one of the youngest children of ten, so that most of my, my elder ancestors had passed away by the time I came along. I only knew one grandmother and no grandfathers. That's so, kind of sad. Yeah, it was. It was, but it was an age thing that uh, uh, I didn't have an opportunity and they didn't either. So you were the next to the youngest, were That's you? That's right. That's right. I, I was number number nine. <laughs> you know, I think of that I come from a large family of eight uh, kids, uh-huh. but ten seems... Yeah. Vast. Yes, it is. It is. But we we had we had a, a very close family, and uh, lived together with each other forever. They all lived in New York. I'm the only one that moved away. I moved to Maine in 1951, but uh, the rest of them stayed in New York City and in, in, in Bronx or environs of New York anyway. Well, tell me what it's like to grow up as the next to the youngest of ten, though. What do you think it is that kept the family close? The parents. The parents. They do. They do. They do the work. Dad played games with us. Mother was uh, busy all the time with us, of course. And then we always had the company of the other sisters and brothers, or I did. So I didn't feel as if I was number nine ever until they started fall, fall, dying off. Then I realized how many there were. But up until then, I just was part of the family. And you had fun? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> I did. I did. Uh, my family were brought up very much Catholic. We went to Catholic school. You sit in your desk. You pay attention to the sister. The sister says, no, you don't do it, some of us. And I'm afraid to say I was not very obedient all the time. But my other sisters were very, very, very much brought up in the Catholic style. You do what you're told. You sit down and be quiet. And you say yes and no. Now, I remember my mother saying, because I was the oldest, that I was the learning child. And then with each subsequent child, I think she got a little looser. <laughs> do you think that by the time you came along in your family that your mother maybe wasn't as strict or your father wasn't? Oh, I think she had it down cold by the time I grew along. She just said, "Let you know, go ahead, blaze away was her favorite thing. Go ahead. It's not going to kill you. Blaze away. <laughs> so I think, she, I think she just rolled with the punches by then. And what about your older sisters and brothers? Did they look out for you? Oh, yes. My sister Betty was the oldest, and she was the one that had to take the responsibility for the family. Being the oldest is not the easiest because the diapers have to be changed, the babies have to be taken care of while they're taking care of number three, four, and five. And uh, I remember having uh, I had a fell and cut my eye, and it was a very bad cut. And the only person to take her to the hospital was my older sister, Betty, because she was 
she had a car and she was the only one. So the oldest sister is kind of like the second mom. I can attest to that. You never feel like you're quite one of the gang. <laughs> yeah. Oh, she felt as if she was one of the gang, but she was in charge of the gang. <laughs> and you, you just went around and... Um, played. Yeah, so you were a bit of a hellraiser? A little bit, yeah, yeah. And I haven't changed a lot. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. I could, I could tell, and uh, when we were having lunch together, there's um, quite a few sparks that were... <laughs> <laughs> They're still there, yeah. Um, when were you born? 19, March 15, 1923. And, of course, you don't remember on the day you were born, but as you were growing up, what was the world like? The world was just a ball of fun. I had a little friend next to her, John. John and I played together. We, we used to play, oh, make cars out of old car seats or a peach basket, and we'd take trips. He would stay in the driver's seat, and I would sit in the back seat, and we would travel to Syracuse or someplace like that, New York, and, and we made our own fun. So there was a lot of imagination involved. Yeah, yeah, completely. And then there were parks. We used to go to the parks, and they had special games for us, and, you know, the old uh, tag and all those games that were always fun. But growing up, we always had companionship. And as you got into high school, what was it like for you at that age? Well, we left, we left Yonkers when, and when I was in second year high school. And uh, my, my parents lost their house in the Depression. They uh, uh, went bankrupt, so we had to. We had a beautiful house, a 14-room house there with a, a lovely, lovely setting and everything. And we had to. We moved to the Bronx to a walk-up apartment. Okay, so by then, most of your brothers and sisters have left home. Uh, some no, they were, they were still there. Six or seven were still home, and one or two had moved on. But we had. I think there were five or six bedrooms in that apartment, and. Uh, uh, some of my, my sisters got married off one at a time. I'm talking about the 1940s during the war, after the war, and uh, married one at a time. I was the last one to get married. Okay. Tell me about your parents going bankrupt. How did that happen? Well, it was the Depression. They had, the, the banks closed, and they had their money in the bank, and they, they couldn't get it out. That was it. Do you remember? So they couldn't keep up the payments on their house. And it was it was just they were evicted. Were you old enough to realize anything about what was going on? Not really. I didn't realize it. But of course, when you're thirteen, fourteen, fifteen years old, it's all about me. And and I was going to a school that I liked. It was it was a it was out away from Yonkers, but it was a, it was a, a bus trip. And I'm going to lose all my friends, and I don't want to move there. I can't be, uh, uh, nobody will love me there, and all this kind of stuff, which a teenager would do. So I was not really resentful, but certainly not happy to be having to move away from everything that was familiar to me. Do you remember how they tried to explain it to you? No, they just said we have to do it. So they didn't go into any of Nothing the details? About the, I, they didn't tell me anything about the mortgage. I learned that 20 years later. Really? Yeah. So tell me about the new neighborhood you moved into. It was uh, mostly uh, Catholic people that lived in the area. And uh, it was entirely different from where we were out in the country before. And I had two years of high school. And then we, after high school, I got a job in, in, in uh, working as a typist and a stenographer in New York. In that time that you 
lived in the walk-up. That's what you called it, a walk-up. Mm-hmm. Um, did you notice any changes in, say, how your parents were or how they moved in the world? Were they different? Uh, I don't think that, I, I, I didn't notice, probably. Uh, they were still my parents, and they still had their rules. And I had to follow the rules, of course, and get through school and go out and get a job. And my other sisters, some of them could find work, some of them couldn't find work. So they were tough times for all of us, I guess. I mean, I was lucky like 12 or $15 a week. Wow. Of that, I had to give one-third to my parents to help. Did your father ever lose his job? My father was a, a musician, and he, he had, and he was also an organ builder. And he built a an organ down in St. Peter's Church in Church Street, New York, which is right near the World Trade Center. It's the oldest Catholic church in New York. And after he completed the organ, it was such a, a, a huge and expensive organ with like five or 6,000 pipes. No one could play it. So they hired him to play the organ, and that's where he, he worked uh, as a church organist. And then he also taught music in schools. And he was able to continue doing that kind of work during the Depression. Yeah, but of course, like he was getting 25 cents a lesson for teaching music, or 50 cents if it was a special student, something like that. So here you are, early teenage, when the world revolves around you. You had to go to a different school. You had to move to a different neighborhood. And would you say that your lifestyle in general changed? Oh, yeah, I would say it had changed. But, but when you're that age, you know, there's compensation for everything. When, when you're that age, you fall in with the new style. And if, if I were older, I probably couldn't fit in with the new style. But being younger, you just accommodate yourself to what the situation is. And you made friends, and you were, oh, o- yeah. you were okay. It was easy. I always found it easy to make friends. My sisters didn't always find it easy, but I always found it easy. So some of your older sisters had a more difficult time with this transition than you did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You went on after high school, and you got a job. Mm-hmm. Thank God you took those typing lessons. <laughs> yeah. And you enjoyed what? About doing the typing or working in that kind of a job, what did you like about it? Oh, I liked working in New York. I liked I liked working around Rockefeller Center. Of course, this was the, the I mean, this was the head of the universe during the war, and all the sailors and soldiers were there, and and uh, that was the, that was where everything. That's where the action was in the forties and fifties, or in the late thirties and forties, anyway. So what kind of action did you like? Oh, we used to go to, the, all the movies were, the movies were the big thing. You could you go to the Radio City Music Hall and all those. You went down, took the subway, went down for the day and spent it at Radio City Music Hall. And the crowds, I loved the crowds. I loved being, I liked being part of the crowds. And that was, that was exciting, I thought. Now, of course, the United States was at war then, correct? Yes. And what was that? Were you even aware, I mean, at that age, about what was happening with the war? Oh, God, yeah, my classmates were, were going to, because they were 17, 18, 19 years old. They were, going to, they were going to war. My brothers, my brother-in-laws, and my sisters were married. They were all going to war. Did you worry about that? Your, oh, Your yeah. parents must have been worried yeah. sick about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was, but it was, it, it was what happened. So it was... 
it was as if you didn't really have a choice in the matter. You had to go and you had to serve your country and that was that. That's right. But everybody came home safe in your family? In my family, yes, they did, fortunately. But all my classmates did not. Several of them were passed away. Some of them were maimed. But it was, see, I got, I got out of high school in 1940. So there was still another five years of war. What are some of the ways that your family was affected other than your siblings having to go off and fight in the war? Were there rations and of oh, gas? Yeah. And oh, what, yeah. what was that all like? Oh, yeah. It was, uh, you forget about that because you were kind of erase all the, all the, 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 we used to save foil, the cigarette wrappers to, to save the foil for, for the war efforts. You got one pair of shoes a year. And of course, there were eight girls in my family, so and somebody always wanted another pair of shoes. So poor Dad got blistered for his coupon for shoes, and then you had coupons that you could buy meat like three times a week. You could buy only a certain amount of, of butter, eggs, things like that. They were really scarce. You just didn't. They just were not there. And and if there if there were if there were eggs available in the supermarket down the street, everybody got a line. Even if you knew what, what was on sale or what they were selling, you knew it was important if they were lined up getting whatever it was at the end of the line. So you'd get in the line. Yeah, of course, of course, yeah. What about when the war ended? Were you in New York City? Oh, yeah. I, I was there for all the victory parades, VE2 and, and uh, Japanese victory, yeah. Describe them for me. What was it like for you to be there? Oh, well, we were on the fifth floor in this apartment house. We were throwing things out the window, all papers and toilet paper and streamers or anything we could find, and banging pots and pans. It was, it was very... And I went down to Times Square, of course. Uh, I didn't happen to see the sailor kissing the girl in Times Square, but I had been there many times. With the, and, the, and when we went down to Times Square, I guess it was the day after VJ Day, and, and everybody was kissing the servicemen, and they were just hugging each other. It was, just, it was just exciting. Did you ever think of enlisting? I thought about it, but I had a boyfriend, <laughs> so that, that changes a lot of things. It does. And why wasn't your boyfriend overseas? He, he was a medical student, and, and uh, he was deferred because of his medical, going to medical school, because they figured they needed the doctors more than they needed uh, some boots on the ground. Got it. What kind of work did you do? I was a secretary. I was a secretary for one uh, private secretary for a, in a small office. And uh, they were made canteen vending machines with uh, five cents for a Hershey bar, put your nickel in and get a Hershey bar. And that's still prevalent today. I worked there for quite, all through the war. Yeah, and I loved it. I had a wonderful boss. He, he was very nice to me. And, and I stayed there till I got married. How much did you make? I made $75 a week, more than any of my friends. Wow. Well, candy's not five cents anymore, is it? <laughs> Hardly. <laughs> the war is over. You stayed working in the canteen factory uh, uh, as, a, as the secretary. At what point did you meet your husband? Well, he, my brother lived across the street from him in Maine. In Maine? In Maine. What was your brother doing up in Maine? He was an insurance salesman, and he lived across the street from my husband. And his wife was still living, and, his fam and her family, their family. And he used to come to New York for the conventions. And the convention center was at the Commodore Hotel, which was right across the street from the, the Chrysler building. 
and they used to entertain these salesmen from out of town, and they would give them free dinners and free shows, and they could bring whoever they wanted. So Joe used to uh, take me to a lot of the parties so I could meet some young fellows and get to know somebody. By now, has the medical student moved on, or have you moved on he from... Dump, he dumped me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but uh, uh, so I saw Joe uh, maybe two or three times a year, and his wife was still living and, and encouraged it. And uh, What do you mean encouraged it? Well, she, she, she felt sorry because I got dumped. And then she, so she said, you're going to all these parties. Why don't you bring her and introduce her to some of the young men that you meet in the conventions? So um, you got to know Joe, but then his wife passed away? Yes, she had heart condition, rheumatic heart fever. And by then you knew Joe, mm -hmm. and you knew he had five kids. Yeah. At what point did you fall in love and decide, okay, I can raise these five kids? Well, it was a big surprise. <laughs> He just said, you want to get married? And I said, yeah, okay. Well, it sounds romantic, but was it? I mean, were you in love it with was, him? It was pretty practical. Well, I knew him well. I'd, I'd seen him, been seeing him for three or four years. I, I knew his way of, his style of living, his way of living. It was better than what I had. And uh, he was a very, very charming guy. Very, very sociable and charming. And... Uh, we got along well together. We stayed. We married, married for 67 years. So you had known Joe through your brother for several years, gotten to know him as a, just a fellow human being, and then his wife passed away. And one day he says, hey, you want to get married? And you said, yeah, sure. Yeah. Pretty much what it was like. That's right. <laughs> and it was a good decision. Yes, it was. And we got married very shortly, in two or three months. He asked me in January. We were married in March. And you moved from New York, which is a place you loved, to Maine, where there aren't nearly the crowds you got, you like to get into when you're in New York City. Yeah, but there was plenty of action. Oh, yeah, five kids. No different action. <laughs> and um, you lived in Westbrook, Maine? Yes. Okay. So tell me what it was like for you. How old are you by this time? 27, 28. Okay. What was it like for you to give up that life that you loved so much and a job that you loved to move to Maine and to suddenly be the stepmother of five kids? Well, this was about 1950, 1951. And uh, New York was not the fun place it used to be. It was getting to be dangerous to go out at night and it was not perfect. And it was, it was a bad time for New York and, and it was a good time for me to get out of New York. What was it about Maine that you liked? Like, I'm imagining that you have the pros and the cons. I didn't mind leaving New York at that time. I, I'd, yeah, I'd, been, I'd I had my fill of it. I'd been there long enough. It was time to get married, and I wasn't. Because you know, I lost that time during the war when people were getting married, and I didn't. And uh, uh, so I was, I was ready to settle down to something different, really. And uh, uh, I, I didn't feel as if I was leaving anything. I felt I was going, going to something. That's nice. That's really nice. And how was it with the kids? Did they accept you? Uh, yes, they did. They did. Uh, their mother did a very good job. She was knew she was going to pass away. And she was very careful. And she, uh, and she told me at one time, he's going to have to have somebody else to take care of those five children. And she didn't want five misbehaved children. It'd be bad enough to have five children without having them misbehaved. So she was really kind of strict with them and make sure that they were on the right road. Well, that seems pretty magnificent. 
actually. So you knew his wife before she passed? You'd I met her a few times, not a lot, but I met her three or four times, but I didn't know her well. But enough to know that she knew she was going to die and she wanted to prepare her kids in a way? I think so. How old were the kids when you moved in? The oldest was 17 and the youngest were twins who were seven years old. Would you say, depending on the age of the kids, that some of them were more easy to accept you than others? Well, the only one I was concerned about was the oldest girl, because she was in charge of the family, being the oldest girl. And I was afraid, but I found out that she was quite relieved that she didn't have all that responsibility anymore. So you were able to sit down and talk with her about it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's wonderful. You hear so many stories about people just putting up walls and not being able to talk about what's really on their minds. Mm -hmm. So when you and Joe got married and you moved to Maine, how long after his wife had died, would you say? I think it was about two years. So when you moved to Maine, the oldest daughter had been taking care of the family for those two years, you mm -hmm. say. And so with you, help. With help. With help. Okay. There was a housekeeper? A housekeeper and a cook. And uh, she had she had physical help with housework, but she she was put the babies to bed, you know, get them up in the morning, get them off to, you know. She had to be the chief nurturer, didn't yeah, she? Yeah, she did. Yeah. Were you at all worried about suddenly going from being a single footloose, fancy free woman to suddenly having such a huge amount of responsibility? I guess I was so busy I didn't have time to get worried about that. <laughs> I just fit in. That you you said yes, let's go. What a great attitude. You just dove in with both feet. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily, like you said, you were raised with nine other kids, so you knew what it was like to be around a family, and you had your own parents as examples of good parenting. Right. And I had 38 nieces and nephews, so I was used to helping out with the babies and taking, taking the older ones, you know, different trips and stuff like that. I was used to having children around. So describe for me, like when you put your head down at night in those early years that you were there taking care of the kids, did you put your head down at night and close your eyes and were you satisfied? Were you happy? Were you fulfilled? I just was tired. <laughs> I just put my head down and went to sleep. <laughs> what was Joe like? My husband? He was a very serious scientist. He, uh, have you seen the, the stamps that you, you don't have to lick? He was, the, he was the developer of those stamps. You're kidding. And he has the patent for how to do that. That's, he has the single patent for that, for the company. So then he, he went overseas and uh, taught other people how to do it for uh, compensation. So I remember you told me that he was a scientist who worked at the paper mill. It was S.D. Warren. Yes. <coughs> and then it became Sappy. Were you, was he there when it was Sappy? Or? We left just about the time Sappy took over. From now on, any time I use a stamp, I'm going to think of Joe. <laughs> Good. So do I. <laughs> <laughs> you said that, oh, I don't want to forget this. You, he had his five children, but then you had two children together. Right. At what point did those kids come along? Louise was nine months and nine days after we got married. <laughs> and Jim came three, three years later. 
And how did that work out, to have these two new siblings introduced to the family? Oh, the, the kids were excited. They were delighted with the, with the new baby. Yeah, so they just was beside themselves with it. And she loved it because she got somebody to do things for her and play for her and oh. take care of her. She, they both loved it. It worked out very well. That's wonderful. It sounds like you had a really good family, marriage, family life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. I did. And then at what point did you leave Westbrook? Well, then we went. Uh, Joe, Joe worked when he, le- when he left. He did, he did a little bit of consulting after he retired. Yeah, I think he had about two years that he consulted. And then we, took a, we went on an IESC trip. International Executive Service Corps. It's like a uh, do-good organization that helps developing countries. Mm-hmm. So we went to Brazil and lived in, in Rio de Janeiro for three months while he worked for a chemical company there, changing over from a textile company to a paper mill. And what did you do when he was doing that work? Well, I learned per- Portuguese. And I learned I learned all about Rio de Janeiro. So, can you still speak a little Portuguese? I've lost it all. Yeah, I've lost it all. So you were there for three months, and then what did you do? Well, then then we came back, and then then we decided the next year. What he said, well, well, what we went from January to March, so we were there for Mardi Gras, and then uh, the next year we decided, uh, well, we ought to do something for winter, so we took a trip around the world. Wow. And we went with a, a, an outfit called Semester at Sea. Mm-hmm. And it's about 350 college students that take their last semester at college. And they take about 50 adult passengers. So we went on that uh, tour around the world. I've never heard of that. I'm intrigued. It was very interesting. Uh, we took all the classes, that they take classes every day. We took the special classes, and, and then they traveled around each world they went grouped had uh, meetings all over the world to visit different factories or historical places but all to do with the education and then they had to take final exams but we didn't but you went to all the meetings we went to a lot of them yeah the ones that we were interested in we just uh, audited the classes they had classes every day but you didn't have to you, were you expected to attend? No, no, we were just adult passengers. Not we didn't take care of them. We didn't have anything to do with them. But we were we were allowed to go on the trip with them, and it was great traveling with the young people because with their young ideas, it was the time they were having so much anxiety in South Africa. Apartheid was was in full swing, and uh, that was a very interesting place to do to be there in 19, 1984. What did you learn on that trip? We learned how the rest of the people live in the world and how how the education system is more important so important to some of these countries that have nothing and how do they how do they rise above it and how do how do they survive Do you know if it's still going on this program Oh yeah I got a, I got a notice last week they're they're taking a program they go twice a year uh-huh. And we went from Fort Lauderdale to uh, Brazil and then around uh, South Africa and uh, uh, then through India, uh, Sri Lanka, uh, China, Japan, and across the Pacific. That was a long trip I can uh, back. But that was, that was 90 days. Wow. That's a big commitment. Yeah. What they do is when we left Fort Lauderdale, there was an expert on, on Brazil mm. boarded and an expert on anthropology of Brazil and the language. 
So we studied the three or five days to get to Brazil, studied Brazilian and learned something when you got there. And then when, when we left Brazil, those people flew back to New York and we took on people who were experts of South Africa, which was our next stop. And, uh, and then all the way around the world, you would put on the experts and drop them off mm -hmm. so that you always had the expert advice all along the way. And they fed you on the, on oh, the, yeah. on the yeah. ship, yeah. but you got to go off, and were they guided tours everywhere you went? Well, like for instance, in, in uh, uh, Madras, we went to a uh, Lever Brothers factory, and they showed us how they developed the soaps and things, and, and uh, just uh, for the businessmen, just taking a tour of it. And then we went to a salt mine that was, you know, just different things that were, some of them were, we went to, so oftentimes we went to a, a university so that the students could interact with the students of different universities, things like that. And did you also interact with the students? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Did you ever want to go back and visit any of the countries? Oh, we or? did go back. We went took three tours, three trips around the world. What a wonderful experience, both for the young college students and for the older people who were yeah. on board. Yeah. What was the most shocking thing you learned, do you think, in any of these voyages? I, th I think I didn't realize how poor the world is. The world is very, very poor. And, I mean, how does a girl from Westbrook, Maine, find out how poor people, I mean, destitute people are? Did you ever have an opportunity to do any volunteer work anywhere? Oh, I did, always volunteered in Arizona. In Arizona, mostly I volunteered. And I worked, volunteered in the daycare center, senior daycare center for senior living. The, the, a couple would lead the husband off or the wife off. Okay. And go off, but not in not any of the any other countries. Not in the other. That was the only one we did was Brazil because he was so fine at the particular expertise they needed. And the the, the owner of the mill of the of the company that he worked for had a twelve year old son who was anxious to learn English. So Eduardo and I would take a walk, and he would teach me Portuguese, and I would teach him English. How long ago did you take the last trip? Two thousand. So, and Joe was 90 years old then. So Joe was a little bit older? 14 than years older, yeah. At what point did you move out to Arizona? After Joe retired, we just retired to Arizona. And we had an RV, so we traveled the United States. I was just going to ask you, did you go cross-country in the RV? All, all, every state, every state. Every single state. You two loved an adventure, didn't you? And we, went, we, took, we took a group to, of RVs to New Zealand flew to New Zealand and rented RVs there. And uh, I think there were 28 in our group, 28 rigs. Are you telling me that you two took a, tr took a group? Or you were part of a group? Oh, well, more or less, both, <laughs> both. We, my husband happened to be president of the Travel Trailer Club that time. He had like 500 members. So we used to take set up trips. So let me just, I wanna make sure I get the chronology right. Joe retires from doing research. He did a consultancy for a while, but you sold the house in Westbrook and you retired in Arizona in Sun, Sun City, in Sun City, Arizona, which is outside of Phoenix. Mm. And that was your home base. Yeah. Retirement didn't mean to you what it means to some people. Retirement, it seems, meant to you that you really opened up your mind to all kinds of adventures and learning new things and doing things. Why not? Why not? I, th I think it sounds very exciting. <laughs> now that you are 96? 96, yeah. 96. 
Um, you've lived here in Maine. You came back to Maine how long ago? Seven years. Okay. How long did you get to live out in Arizona? 35 years. That's a long time. And then did Joe get sick? Yeah. Well, he, he, he had a stroke. And it was in the, he was in the care center for a year. And that was 2001 he died. And how old was he at that time? 90, 91. And were you prepared for that? Can you be prepared for that even though you I was know prepared for that since I was married. Why? Well, he was so much older. I figured he, you know, he was going to go and I was going to be left. Well, how do you prepare for something like that? You just expect it when it arrives. Doesn't make it hurt any less, probably. No, no, it's just a fact. Would you consider yourself a very practical, pragmatic kind of an individual? Very much so. <laughs> so sentiment doesn't rise to the top as much as practicality does. Oh, I've got sentiment, but uh, I use my head. How did your life change after Joe died? Uh, it stayed pretty much the same in Arizona because I had the same people. It changed when I came back to Maine because I was limited to what I could do. And now I'm limited because I can't drive. Oh, don't you hate that? And that that's, that's a killer. So you had a strong support system in Arizona. And then came the day when you just realized that you needed to move. I needed to plan ahead. I was in good shape. I was uh, 89, 88, 89, 89. I turned 90 when I was here. Mm -hmm. So uh, but I was, I was going to begin to need help, and I was out there by myself. So you didn't need help yet at 89. Right. But what were you expecting you're going to need help with? I didn't know. I didn't know. But I, I, talking to people out there, I knew that it was time for me to be near someone when I did need help. And my, than, my daughter happens to be an attorney, mm -hmm. and which was one of the reasons I came here. She's, she's very capable. So some people just let things happen, and they, you know, suddenly there's a crisis. You didn't want to be in the crisis situation. You right. wanted to be all, already established. Right. Must have been hard, though, after 35 years to say goodbye to Arizona and say goodbye to your friends. Yeah, well, hard. if it's hard, it's hard. You just do it. I've heard that so many times from people I've interviewed. I've interviewed a lot of people who are in their 90s now, and um, a lot of them said, it is what it is. You make the best of it. Well, that, that's kind of a defeatist if you're going to say it is what it is. But some things you cannot change. You can't change death. It's coming. But you can change how you live the life you have, correct? One day at a time. So tell me what it is for you at 96. When you wake up every morning, you happy to be alive? I've, I'm, I'm tired of it. I'm t I've done it. I've done it, and I'm tired of it. Uh, I, there's a group that meets for coffee in the morning, about eight people out in, in the grill. And I make myself go every morning because that means I have to get up, I have to get dressed, I have to look decent, I have to see people and talk to them, and and I'm ready for the day. So at least I've I haven't not sitting here in my PJs all morning. Because you could do that. Yeah. That's not like you when you were younger. No, no, no. At what age do you think that started happening to you, or did it start happening to you when you moved in well, here? Well, I moved here. 
Yeah. Would you say that you're depressed? No. Just um, ready? Yeah, I'm ready. I've been ready. For how long? Oh, three or four years. Three or four years. How do you know when you're I've, ready? I've, well, I've, I've done everything that I wanted to do. I, I, there's nothing I want to do that's left over. I've been every place. I've seen everybody and done what I want to do. There's, there's no challenges. The challenge is to get up and get dressed. Yeah, yeah, but that's a big challenge. You ever lonely? Not really, not really. When I am, I, I go up. Fortunately, one of the good things about living, living in the lodge instead of living in a cottage is when I'm lonely, I just walk down the hall and there's somebody there. You know, I forgot that we were in the lodge because I was looking out and thinking that this is one of the cottages. But this is a really nice apartment. Thank you. Yeah, it is a nice apartment, yeah. But I, I, I walk twice a day, all the way a, tw a mile. That's about a mile. But I meet people along the way. And then it just turns it over. When I walk down the hall, I know everybody, and they know me, yeah. Maybe a few new people I don't know, but mostly everybody I, I know. So there are some older people who will isolate themselves, but you do not do that? Yeah, purposely, on purpose. So by saying that, you're an extrovert, you make friends easily, but still you can feel it inside of you that if you weren't on top of it, you might isolate yourself in here. It would be easy. It would be easy, yeah. So that gives me a little bit of insight into some other people who do do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you have some kind of reserve, I guess. That yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, I don't think it's good to just stay by. That's why I got Alice. Alice, I wanted her to take me out one day a week at least. That's where we started. Just to get out of here and go, go in the car and go someplace, out to lunch, out for a ride. And that's what we do mostly, go different places. And, and she's very entertaining and very uh, delightful to me. And she's very, 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 very thoughtful and, and caring. And I'm just fortunate to have her. She just is, does so much for me. I think that how you lived your life, all your life dictates how you end your life. If you are a person who is outgoing and curious and always wanting to learn new things, that's not going to change, I don't think, when you're 90. Mm -mm. I mean, even though you say that it would be easy to isolate yourself, you're still curious. You still get out and do things. You take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. So that's maybe just what's inside of you. That's your makeup. Yeah. But there are too many, too many people are, are just closing the door and staying in their own apartment. Do you think that's a push or a pull thing? You know, do you think that that's because just, that's just who they are, or is it because there's nobody that's reaching out to them? Well, you have to reach out yourself, too. I was recently at a conference, um, it was an, an aging conference, and we were having a discussion afterwards. And one of the things I've learned is a lot of people I've interviewed who live in assisted living places, they have lots of people around them and they have lots of activities but they miss their kids because the general consensus was that once the kids know you're safe in a place they feel like they don't have to you know <laughs> yeah and so we were talking about well how can we make the kids understand and one of the ladies said we have to tell them because sometimes we don't we don't let our kids know hey i'm lonely i'd like to see you because we don't want to 
bother them. We don't want to be a burden. Um, but one lady, another lady got up and she said, well, you know, I, I did tell my son recently, we, he took me to one of the kids' games. And when we were going home, I said, I loved that so much. I wish I could do it more often. I wish I could see you more often. And he said to her, well, I didn't realize that. Let's have a date once a week. We'll, we'll all get together for dinner. And she just, she said, if I hadn't said anything, he would never have known. So mm -hmm. like you said, sometimes we just have to I'm apt tell to do them. That. I'm apt to do that. I think that's the mother in you. What to? Yeah, to protect them, not to burden them, and not to, not to upset them. So you might keep your your troubles or your anxieties or your sadness, yeah. anything to yourself. Yeah. yeah, they want to hear the good things, but they don't really want to hear the bad things. Everything's fine. Everything's fine is what they really want to hear. So if you were telling them how you really felt, what might you say? That's a part of vanity too. What do you mean? Well, you want to feel as if you're self-sufficient. You don't need you don't need to uh, get help from them. My daughter says that's the reason I'm not dying. I can't get to heaven. I have to be humble before I go, and I'm not humble enough. <laughs> <laughs> that's like Ben Franklin. I remember reading someplace he said, "I I have only one one flaw in my character. I lack humility." <laughs> Personified. <laughs> Do you think people treat you any differently now that you're 96? I don't tell them. But they know that you're not 60 anymore. <laughs> I think I think they guessed that. I don't think they'd guess that you were 96, though. You don't look. I'm being I'm stereotyping, but you do not look 96. You do not act 96. You're in good physical shape. Yeah, I have a, a kidney problem, and it's incipient, but it's just it's not bothersome. It's just there, so I have to watch potassium. Don't eat anything with potatoes in it. Don't eat bananas. Don't eat peaches. Don't eat cantaloupe orange juice, you know, but that's that's the only thing that restricts my diet is the fact that it, the potassium should be controlled, not mm -hmm. not eliminated, but controlled. Your eyes are fine, your ears are fine? Yeah. What? <laughs> you have a good sense of humor. <laughs> are you still learning new things? Hopefully, yes, hopefully, yeah. What do you wish you could do now that you can't? I like to play golf. I played a lot of golf. Yeah, I miss my golf. What makes it a good day for you? What make you? You're asking me a question. <laughs> yes, I'm asking a question now. Okay, one one of the things that makes it a good day. I like to play bridge. I had been playing three days a week, but now I play one day a week. I like to play poker. Mm -hmm. I like to go to lectures. I like to go to all the plays in Portland. I go to the Symphony. I go to the Good Theater. I go to the Lyric Theater. I go to Portland Players. Uh, there's another one, I forget what it is. Portland Stage? Portland Stage, yeah. And I take the van, so I go to all the plays, and I, I enjoy doing that. That's fun. That's awesome. I'm glad I asked you that question. <laughs> <laughs> when did you stop driving? When I got Alice, two years ago. So you were driving up until that point, and what made you stop? I thought it was time. So nobody came to you and said, "Mom, we're taking the keys away." No, and it wasn't, and it wasn't that anything happened. I just, I just said, "This is time to." Like I said, I was going. It's time to move here. It's time to stop. It's the time to live and the time to die. It was hard to give up your car, though, huh? Killed me. 
We still use my car. I still have it. Alice drives it. That's the part that I'm not looking forward to. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> I mean, I wanted to get a birthday card. You know, you just can't get a birthday card. You gotta wait till Alice comes. Well, thank God for and Alice. There's that, that humbling thing. <laughs> when we were having lunch together, you were talking about you don't let anybody tell you to do anything. Uh-uh. No, I really don't. I really haven't up until now. And do you think it's going to happen more and more? It has to. It has to. But you'll still be speaking your mind. Quietly. What would you like your legacy to be? Oh, God. She made me happy. I have to say you've made me happy today. <laughs> I've enjoyed talking with you a great deal. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Conversations About Aging, a Catching Health podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, and I've been talking with Alma Thomas. If you enjoyed my conversation with Alma, please consider sharing it with a friend. You'll find more episodes on my blog, Catching Health, at catchinghealth.com. This podcast was made possible by Avita of Stroudwater, a memory care facility, and Stroudwater Lodge, an assisted living community, both in Westbrook, Maine. You'll find out more about them at northbridgecos.com. Many thanks to Smith Atwood Video Services for editing the podcast. See what else they have to offer at smithatwood.com.